Chapter 8 A quote relevant to Chapter 8 by Dylan Thomas from Under Milkwood, a play for voices. Alfred Pomeroy Jones, sea lawyer, born in Mumbles, sung like a linnet, crowned you with a flagon, tattooed with mermaids, thirst like a dredger, died of blisters. <laughs> Autumn to Kirkby Stevens. Nine miles, five hours walking. In Brisbane, I live in the intensely green and leafy suburb with the self-effacing name The Gap. It's a suburb which, when buying into, real estate agents spruik as inner city, but when selling out, they classify as in the sticks. The Gap, being an enclosed valley, surrounded on all sides by tree-covered hills, enjoys a self-contained village feeling. Unfortunately, the Gap has an unusually high pollen count that ensures many residents suffer from sinus trouble and asthma. When living there, I'm also a casualty. I generally start each morning with a thick head, feeling vaguely off-colour. Such was not the case at Sheila's farm. I woke dangerously sharp, clear-eyed, and eager for the road. The farm and surrounding fields were bathed in a brilliant white mist. The mournful bleating of sheep and the rasping call of a passing crow were the only sounds filtering through the hoary dampness. I was alone in the dining room, admiring the collection of porcelain sheep and cattle, when Sheila startled me from behind. We found the glasses, she exclaimed in a friendly but distracted sort of way. I'm very pleased, I replied, trying to second-guess what she was talking about. Come over here, and I'll show you how. She purred in her beautifully soft Border County accent. I was sitting here. I opened my eyes, and there they were on the floor, half hidden under the rock, beneath the couch, said Sheila, at once feigning both amazement and relief. I was delighted she'd found the glasses, even before I knew they'd been lost, although I must admit to being a little baffled as to why she had told me at all. Over a fine black pudding-free breakfast, the mystery of the spectacles became clear. Before turning in, I usually study the guidebook and plan the following day's activities, Peter stated. Last night, I couldn't. I'd lost my spare pair of specs. Whilst I was in Seventh Heaven Dreamtime, the spectacles hunt was on in earnest. Peter, Colleen, Shirley and the old-timer Joe turned the house upside down, hunting for the specks, but without success. Peter and Colleen dashed back to the George, in the hope they'd been handed in, but with no luck. Meanwhile, back at the farm, Sheila sat on the edge of the couch, with her head in her hands, thinking, What next? It was then that she spotted the specks on the floor, half-concealed beneath the fringed edge of the sofa. By the time we started the day's trekking, the sky was clear blue and sunny. The path was thick with wide-bladed grass, lush, deep green, and very wet. Grass like that soon tests the waterproof qualities of all walking boots. My French-made footwear failed the test magnificently. When walking in bright, warm sunshine, it's amazing how little concern one feels for damp, squelching feet. 
The section from Autumn to Kirkby Stevens includes lengthy stretches of sealed bitumen road. Fortunately, the roads were quiet and little used. They wind through wide-rolling heath, crisscrossed by mile upon mile of dry stone walls. The moorland is home to a wide variety of Camerishai sheep. The guidebook described this section of the walk as tedious and perhaps the dullest section of the entire coast-to-coast trail. On that warm autumn day, Peter and I found the open country and the big skies to be nothing less than delightful. The only downside to the day was an uncomfortable foot, or more precisely, the second toe of my left foot. For some obscure reason, the damp sock on that foot kept slipping down and puckering up in the front of my boot. Regardless of how firmly the sock was pulled up, down it rolled to chap between my toes. It hadn't happened before, and was an irritant all day. Why ancient man found the heath a desirable place to live is anybody's guess. Perhaps several thousand years ago, the area offered good grazing, or was productive arable land. Forests may have covered the hills, providing secure habitat for game and concealment for hunters. Whatever the reason, the area is rich in archaeological sites. Allegedly, one of the most important prehistoric settlements in the British Isles. To my untrained eye, there was little visible evidence to support the claim. That was until we came upon a group of archaeologists at work. They were conducting research on an ancient site where the heath had been removed to expose bare earth and hopefully its preserved secrets. We didn't stop, but waved a silent greeting as ancient man may have done thousands of years ago. Above us, the vast open sky was streaked high by dozens of feathery vapour trails, the beautiful pollution from early morning transatlantic jets. I'd once learned that at any moment of the day or night there are half a million people jetting about the skies. The clear dome of blue sky was the setting for the morning's entertainment. The urgent snarl of jet fighters and the crumping thump of target-practiced bombs or artillery pieces were heard far off to the west from behind the surrounding hills. Every now and then it sounded as though a jet fighter would streak into view, but none did. Then suddenly they were upon us. They arrived before their thunder, engineering marvels as sleek as black sharks and infinitely more destructive. They twisted and roared, flashed and growled, like two enormous dragonflies, locked together by an invisible force of romance or rage, engaged in their dangerous mock dogfight dance. All morning we marvelled at the jet fighters' antics, which were sometimes near, sometimes far off. We meandered across the country at two or three miles an hour, in the company of skittish sheep and flights of swallows. When we stopped to smell the roses or take a photograph, a few hundred feet above our heads, Young RAF pilots wrestled their technological wizardry about the skies at breakneck speed. How varied and strange our world can be, and how isolated and detached each of us remains from the experience of others. Close as we were to the pilots, we may as well have existed in a parallel universe. For several years I worked in the aviation industry, which I found tediously stay at home. Having failed to be accepted as a flight engineer with BOAC, I left aviation to work in the much more exciting oil exploration industry. During my time in the oil patch, I'd had many exciting flying experiences, such as being ferried to offshore rigs by helicopter or to remote airfields aboard decrepit DC-3s. 
Even though I'd spent hundreds of hours in many types of aircraft, including stints in the cockpit, I can't imagine what an enlivening thrill it must have been for the pilots in the jet fighters above our heads. Peter and I had retired from full-time employment a couple of years before setting off on our trekking expedition. When I was at work and painting only in my spare time, pictures flew off the easel. In retirement, with ample time to spend on creative pursuits, I'd set up to start painting, then put everything away, having done nothing. Peter had suffered the same malaise of inaction. That morning, on the open heath, both Peter and I resolved to rectify our moribund artistic condition by committing to commence painting once back in Australia. The first picture we'd paint would be the scene before us at that very moment. To seal the deal, we photographed the scene as a memory jogger and to leave little room for excuses. For a long while, the path ran adjacent to a stretch of dry stone wall of which any master mason could have been justly proud. The yellowish limestone was in perfect tonal harmony with the rolling heath and the clumpy vegetation. Ten feet away, high on a bank, beneath the wall, isolated on the open moorland, we met a young farmhand sitting astride a quad bike. He was taking lunch in the company of two calm but alert border collies. The kit around him suggested he was inspecting and repairing the wall. His manner didn't encourage conversation, so we wished him a good day and walked on. Since the Second World War, and more recently thanks to EU agricultural policy, the high level of mechanisation has greatly reduced the farming labour force throughout the British Isles. Nowadays, a large number of farms are run by one farmer and his family. Working alone in isolation for years on end has brought with it the insidious problem of loneliness. Farmers rate high amongst the most at-risk group in the British Isles who succumb to suicide. Around several village, walkers are requested to help protect the ancient archaeological sites by keeping to the path. The site remains unexcavated, but retains great interest for future historical research. Adjacent to the ancient archaeological mounds are more recent abandoned relics of interest to the new discipline of industrial archaeology. There was the darkly sinister railway cottage, with its slate roof still intact. The building is unique in that the outer walls are clad in black slate, some of which have sloughed off like detached fish scales to expose the stone walls beneath. The impressive multi-arched Smartdale Gill viaduct and the abandoned railway line bore testament to the commercial expectations long since worked out. On the valley floor, the mystery of the ancient pillow mounds or giants' graves, which has fascinated mankind for hundreds of years, await resolution. It was a delight to walk across the open heather and limestone country with a fine view of the River Eden and the Pennine Hills in the distance. Nearing the small township of Kirkby Stevens, we entered sheltered bushy country where we feasted on wild elderberry and blackberries. Kirkby Stevens is an attractive market town with a population of about 1,600, whose employment is to service the surrounding rural community. Being off the main tourist trail, the town retains an authentic character and isn't cluttered with joystick perfume shops marketing made-in-China souvenirs. The main street of well-maintained civic and commercial buildings bore their heritage with quiet confidence. It was easy to visualise a stagecoach and four 
rounding the corner on a quiet Sunday afternoon and drawing to a halt at the steps of the 18th-century King's Arms Hotel. Peter and I were studying our pints of bitter at the Black Bull when Colleen joined us. She'd been irritated by the imperious offhand reception she'd received at our hotel. After knocking for an interminable period, she was grudgingly granted entry by a glacial Hercule Poirot type with a guttural foreign accent and dark, deep-set eyes, but minus the upturned wax moustache. Peter and I checked in later without unpleasantness. When preparing for dinner, I discovered an elongated blister on my right foot. The repeated bunching of the sock and the roughness of the seam had caused the trouble. Solving the problem was simple. I burst and emptied the blister and covered it with a sticking plaster and threw the offending socks away. After that, I had no further trouble with my feet. Back at the Black Bull, we watched the final minutes of the test on television. England had declared late in the afternoon, after successfully fending off a furious attack from a young Aussie fast bowler. No doubt the bowler could see his winner's bonus being snatched away as a result of England's spoiler tactics. Australia came into bat with no hope of winning. The Australian batsmen were hammered by the same outrageous bowling they themselves had just inflicted on the English tail-end batsmen. The English team must have felt fully justified in their action, and most of the spectators thought it was great fun. The Australian opening batsmen were furious, and soon Australia conceded defeat, giving England victory and the Ashes. Throughout the whole test series, there wasn't the slightest whiff of match-fixing nor ball-biting, a technique that had recently found favour with the Pakistanis. The English team had bettered Australia's champion cricketers. They triumphed by skilful play, employing a winning strategy and possessing that all-important ingredient, a large dollop of luck. We celebrated England's victory with a pint of real ale. Both Peter and I were supporting the underdogs, England. Their victory was worth celebrating. After all, they just emerged from a 20-year stint in the cricketing doldrums, and Australia wins nearly every time they put on pads. If, however, the Australian Prime Minister had got wind of our viewpoint, he may have cancelled our passports and subjected us to detention without trial for having subversive un-Australian attitudes. Some weeks later, we learned that a loyalty test for new Australian citizens, based in part on knowledge of sport, had indeed been proposed. Under this procedure, a new Aussie who supported Australia over their country of origin in any sport would be deemed to have an acceptable degree of loyalty towards their new adopted land, Australia. Both Peter and I were delighted to have failed the absurd and pointless test. I often get the impression that the Australian national sports mania to win at all costs has little to do with players but is rigorously pursued so leech politicians can gorge on victory's kudos. During our splendid dinner at the Black Bull, two bedraggled walkers stumbled into the bar. They were bent double beneath enormous backpacks and desperately tired after trekking twenty miles from Shap. How fortunate we were to have no time constraints which enabled us to limit each day's journey to that comfortably managed by two novice senior citizens in their early sixties. When leaving the pub, we passed the table where the late arrivals were sitting. They'd cleaned up and were dining. 
one of them had been game enough to take a chance with the menu. The Cumberland sausage at the Black Bull was the real thing. An appetizing coil, nearly a foot and a half long, that covered a large diameter plate. It appeared the Cumberland sausage had moved on and forsaken its homeland to take up residence in Yorkshire. It was only possible to snag a temporary visa, though. In future, all coiled spice meat sausages that are not made in Cumbria will be deemed by EU enforcers to be bogus, sham or fake mystery bags. Definitely not the real thing. Once the law is passed, all Cumberland sausages must be squeezed only in Cumberland. Back at the King's Arms, we used our mystery bag encounter as an excuse to toast the real thing. Hugh of Gippsland was free to join us for a cognac. For once, he was not beavering away, updating his journal. My bed at the hotel gave every appearance of being luxuriously comfortable with soft cotton sheets and feathered pillows. However, when I first slid beneath the covers, an unfamiliar crunching noise led me to believe I'd suffered more from the walk than merely gaining a blister. I soon realised that the crackling wasn't my joints, but came from the bed itself. Perhaps in days gone by, the hotel had accommodated a group attending a seminar for the incontinent, and the hotel management had learned from its experience. Beneath the cotton bedding was a rubberized undersheet designed to prevent leaking body fluids from staining the mattress. The undersheet was uncomfortably stiff and crackled disconcertingly with every movement. Good night.